Andrew Balfour from the Team of Brass and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio has served as a contributor both to Lookout Landing and also Baseball Prospectus. And even more germane to this conversation, she has recently been hired to serve as the managing editor of the Hardball Times. She's our newest employee, is Meg Rowley. Meg Rowley is the guest. And on this edition of the program, we make Meg Rowley's acquaintance. I, as a surrogate for the people, make Meg Rowley's acquaintance. Uh, we learn, for example, about her youth in various neighborhoods of Seattle, Washington, the horrors of the kingdom, the even greater horrors later on in her life of graduate school, and also Ms. Rowley's mighty ascent, her mighty ascent to professional weblogging. It's a very pleasant conversation with Ms. Rowley. And uh, we will get to it momentarily. I'm sure that um, as a new employee of Fangraphs.com, Ms. Rowley would want me to say more than anything the following, that Fangraphs memberships exist for a reasonable fee. Readers of Fangraphs.com can support the excellent work that appears at that site. And for a slightly less reasonable fee, those same readers can acquire an ad-free membership, which allows them to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads, not only facilitating faster loading speeds, but also liberating one from the tyranny and distortive effects of advertising. Fangraphs membership and ad-free membership available by going to Fangraphs.com and then clicking around a little. Clicking around. Okay. That advertisement is now complete. Let us move on to a conversation with Meg Rowley. What is it? It's Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? New managing editor of the Harbaugh Times, Meg Rowley. And when does it begin? Right now. Why don't you go first? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and do you, one, uh, two. Yeah. Is there a one? Uh, what is it? What are we at, nine digits? Is there someone who's just one through nine? I don't know. It, it, would seems... be a, it would be a very silly social security number. Well, it would also belong to a presumably very dead person. Hmm. Why? How well, does it go? I, I don't know. Don't they? If it. If it starts at one, how does how does it work? Because they run out after a bit. How long have there been social security numbers? Well, so <laughs> I hope it's not based on age, and you think that the person who starts with one is dead, because without giving too much away, mine begins with zero. Oh, yeah. I I think that at one point I knew at least more of the answer to this yeah. than I do now, and I think part of it is is geographic, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So you're regionally depending on where you so are just, born. Yeah, so just yeah, so just just give me your social security number, we'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, certainly uh, zip codes yes are geographic. Yes. Yours I'm guessing you live on uh, America's west coast, is that right? I do indeed. We're going to ask you more about that momentarily, but uh <laughs> there I would guess that your zip code begins with a 9. It does. Yeah. It does. Uh, and, uh, and I, when I was living on the East Coast and uh, and working in New York, I had a, a coworker who was actually from Philly, and she was shocked to learn that 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 existed, mm-hmm. that that there were ones that started with nine. People Which, who people who live on a coast and have never left that particular coast are frequently confused about uh, the uh, some of the customs on the other coast. Yes. Um, for example, when I worked at the Varsity Theater in the uh, in the University District of Seattle, um, my boss there was shocked to learn. This is a person who was in his 30s, was shocked to learn that Rhode Island was not an island. Oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. at, uh, but at the same time, my own family, knowing that I lived in Seattle – continued to ask me how Oregon was. Yeah. Which is wrong for two reasons because it's not several several yeah. reasons. <laughs> I didn't live in I didn't live in Oregon and it's pronounced Oregon, not Oregon. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It it's tricky. Although sometimes I wish as a, a person who recently worked uh in philanthropy as my full time job before this became my full time job. I was primarily responsible for donors in the state of Washington, but you know, we did have donors in Oregon, but then we would refer to them as organ donors. <laughs> and sometimes that uh, that little weird emphasis that people from there put on it made it sound like we were 
attempting to take their money and harvest their organs. Harvest their organs, yeah. You know, there's something that – okay, so I, typically the way that it's done, harvesting organs is bad, right? Yeah. And generally speaking. But there's something about the word the, – the, the word harvest is a very wholesome word, right? Yes. It's, it's the sort of word you might expect to hear um, if you're at a um, – if you're like if you're with your coven, for example, you know what I mean. You're almost yeah. definitely going to talk about, uh, or if it's the um, the equinox. If you're going to have an equinox party, if someone's not saying the word harvest, then it's then it's going poorly. You know. Yeah. And so there's something wholesome and and profound about that that word harvest to harvest. That it, it almost seems as though it could never describe something as awful as, as stealing people's most important body parts. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, I suppose if you are a, a family member of someone who has recently passed and is generously donating those yeah. organs, you might find it kind of ghoulish. But maybe mm-hmm. you wouldn't. Maybe mm-hmm. it's better than some of the alternatives. Do you, do you think – so – my wife and I, we have a dog, an adorable little dog. Um, there's, And we wanted a dog very badly. And we happened to get a dog from um, – it wasn't exactly a shelter, but it was like the sort of network of uh, foster, care, foster homes in um, New Hampshire. They bring dogs up from Mississippi. Then you adopt a dog, right? But if, if one so, cho- so choose – so if one so chose – you could really feel as though you were saving an animal, right? Yes. The, some of the rhetoric that surrounds it can make you can make you feel as though you've performed um, uh, an entirely altruistic sort of deed, even though really just we just wanted a dog. Um, I wonder do do you, do you get the sense? Do you get the same sort of feeling from from that uh, sort of um, feeling of altruism, a buoyant feeling of altruism from? From, from being an organ donor? I try not to think about it too terribly much. Yeah. Uh, I One of my relatives, uh, I don't recall why my driver's license was out, but upon seeing my driver's license, saw that I am uh, an organ donor and then decided to tell me that that meant I was less likely to be rescued in the event of a uh, car crash, <laughs> which seems like the sort of urban legend that isn't real. Yeah. Uh, so, but it did make me realize that you know, there's a lot of uh, information about my about my death on my driver's license in addition to my address. <laughs> so I, I try not to think about it too terribly much. But if you've been carted at a um, at a bar or a bottle store, has anyone ever commented on the fact <laughs> that you'll be giving your organs away? Uh, no, thankfully. Uh, mm-hmm. Although I do have to present my my ID quite. Quite a bit more regularly here in Seattle than I have had to in any of the other places that I've lived uh, once I've been of drinking age and, you know, candidly, even before I was of drinking age. So, Ooh, yeah, okay. Yeah, well, so wait a second. So why do you think you're getting carded? Do, does everyone just look older where you are and you look younger by comparison? Uh, I, I think that my, my understanding is that the uh, Liquor Control Board and Alcohol Enforcement in Seattle – uh, is uh, very serious about their work. They take it quite seriously. In fact, I have watched like literal white-haired men be carted at Safeco. Uh, and sometimes they're good-humored about it, and sometimes they give the poor bartender a hard time. Uh, and, and once I actually saw the the gal from you know liquor control standing at the end of the bar, and the old guy said, "Oh, I, I get it. I get it." So he was, he was hip to the yeah to the he, operation. Yeah, he was like, I'm not going to give this poor, you know, bartender a hard time for something that is not her fault. Uh, that was not true in New York, where I think you know because everything is just so ridiculously overpriced. They're like, well, if we're going to charge you ten dollars mm-hmm. for this Bud Light, yeah. we're going to just let you assume. Just take that, it, yeah, yeah, just take it. You're giving us the money. <clears throat> well, I won't reveal the precise. Uh, businesses that allowed under, but I went to I was in I uh, went to college for a couple of years in New York City, and it was very easy to get uh, drinks at bars. Yes, um, and I always thought part of the reason was just that they knew they knew no one was driving anywhere. 
Oh. Because it's like, what sort of 18-year-old has a car in New York City? That's a very good point. And if if you're not driving, then you're not really going to hurt yourself. No, not no. unless you you get chummy with the the subway tracks, but otherwise, no, don't do that. So uh, here's why you're here. Well, you're here because you are newly. Um, well, it starts with your parents, but we'll fast forward <laughs> and we'll get to, to the present day uh, because you've been recently hired. Uh, by Fangraphs in particular to be the managing editor of the Hardball Times. So first of all, let me say, welcome to Fangraphs. Well, thank you. I'm very yeah, happy to be a, here. I'm glad you're on the team. Um, and this is, I've done this with other employees, uh, just to just to say hello, just to say just to say hello, to learn, to learn some things about you, some very basic things. And uh, sometimes it ends up, it doesn't have to be, it could be wonderful, but it could also be just a... D- conversation because um <laughs> because we you and i we have met once before actually but we have not met at length so there's no guarantee uh you know so when people meet each other frequently it's awkward because that's what real life is like yes yeah we did meet once we we met uh on staten island yes yes we, we did yeah <laughs> was- I, um i didn't know i don't know much more about staten island now than i did then no, um, we were we were pretty keen to not explore much beyond where we were, uh, mm-hmm. and you know the the Yankees uh, facility there is just mm-hmm. right off the ferry, yeah. so they don't ask you to. No, that's true. You don't have to make a large <laughs> commitment to stay. No. I always thought I thought that I would. I th- there were a couple, just sort of um, facts on paper, objective facts about Staten Island that I thought uh, led me to believe that I would like it. Which one, it's it's less expensive, I believe, than much of the rest of the city. Yes. Uh, and two, there are there are a lot of Italian people there. Yes. And I pretend to be a hundred percent of one of those types of people. I also pretend to be. Mm. Well, in fact, the first time we met on Staten Island, you asked me if I was Italian. Yeah, <laughs> I think I. I in fact, I may not have uh, had any inkling, but I think that uh, maybe it was because your hair is quite dark. Yes, and uh, you know it was. When we were there, August, yeah. we were there in the month of August. So um, the humidity was making sure that everyone saw my hair at its sort of <laughs> maximum volume. No, well, that's, uh, I mean, sometimes you have to pay extra for that. Yeah. So maybe you were getting it for free. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was it was wonderful to stress about, though, as I was there to make an impression on people that I was not some, like, wild-haired uh, hooligan. But, yes, I, I am Italian also, although not uh, uh, not 100%. But it yeah. is our sort of dominant cultural uh, perspective and experience in our family. So, where um, so were you? Are you from Seattle originally? I am. I was or is the Seattle there. area? I know. I know it a little bit. Um, where 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 in Seattle are you from? So uh, we've we've moved several times. So I lived uh, my early years on the the bottom part of Queen Anne Hill. Okay. Uh, yeah. My parents were. Students at uh, a local school here, SPU, uh, and lived in in student housing when they when they welcomed a little baby Megan to their lives. So wait, um, your parents had you? They were both well, they were in graduate school or something? Or? No, no, they were they were an undergrad. Oh, they were quite young. They might have made a mistake. <laughs> they may have made a mistake. It's one that they they tell me regularly. They're quite happy they made. Yeah, uh, but it yeah, was. Yeah, but uh, they're kind of they kind of contractually obligated, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I asked my mom about that, and she said, "Well, you know, I'm sure it could have turned out badly, but thankfully it didn't. So it's one I can look back on fondly." <laughs> Oh wow! They were very young. They were quite young, yes. They Which were means young. they're very young now. I mean, for uh, I mean, I'm I'm 31, and my parents are in their like early 50s, which is oh wow. You know, it's nice though because they're yeah. spry and present, and it's it's nice. That is uh, that is very interesting. Uh, well, and I it's also because. So um, my wife and I have recently become parents, and we're old people. We're we're, we're old, <laughs> dusty people, um, and uh, so we will not be we will not be spry parents when our own child is thirty one. Um, but I but I am aware that um, 
every bit of reason that I've acquired over 30, now 38 years, every bit of, well, every dollar that I've acquired, um, I'm using all of it. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? I'm using all of it. And so I can't imagine that even like the 36-year-old version of me, because that's, uh, I, mean, I was 37 when our son was born, even the 36-year-old version of me, I can't imagine um, doing this successfully. So I will say the fact that you have grown up to be at least that you can fool everyone sufficiently to make it, <laughs> it seem as though you have your <laughs> together. Uh, I think that is wonderful. Well, thank you. It's it's a testament to them, I think, and our extended, you know, family who mm-hmm. are very kind and supportive. Uh, would you suggest of them. that? It, would you say that it takes a village? Maybe? I would say that. Yes, mm-hmm. even even when parts of your your village are far flung. My my mom is from Colorado. She grew up in Boulder. Uh, and my grandparents on that side still live there. So, you know, they were not, uh, they were not physically present, but they visited often and were kind and loving and, you know, did not, uh, abandoned her in her time of need. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, you know, the, that happened and then they gave it, my parents did a, a good go. And then after that, they decided they did not want to be married to one another anymore. Yeah. And uh, and then my dad and eventually my uh, stepmom uh, and I and I lived on Queen Anne along with my my sister, my stepsister. And then uh, my my mom and her partner and eventual wife moved to Ballard. And now everyone's sort of concentrated in the U district or, you know, neighborhoods proximate to that. Yes. Um, so, you know, nobody went too terribly far. No, no, you're all, and I recognize all of the things you're saying. Those are places in Seattle. That they, they are. They are real places. Identified. Yes. Yes, they uh, are. So. In fact, I will share with you that I, I myself used to live on Wallingford. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Uh, my, which, you know, yeah, you my, say, you my, you already say word. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I keep interrupting you. My, my, uh, my dad and stepmom's house is in, uh, a part of the U district that's quite close to Wallingford. Yeah. And then my mom and her wife, their home is in uh, Ravenna, the neighborhood of Ravenna. Yeah. So, you know, we're all here and everyone gets along now, which is great. Makes, uh, you know, makes everything easier, especially with me home, uh, having been away for a number of years. So, you know, it uh, it was tricky and we were uh, quite poor in the beginning because they were so young and then everybody kind of sorted themselves out over time and... No, I think we're doing okay. What uh, what sort of things did you do as a young person there in Seattle? Um, I avoided the rain. Mm-hmm. I camped uh, sometimes in the rain, although that was not a favorite of mine. Uh, I read a lot. I was pretty nerdy. Yeah. So I read a lot. I I attempted to play uh, rec league basketball pretty unsuccessfully, but I enjoyed it anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to Mariners games. I went to school, as children do. Uh, you know, I did normal kids stuff. What, uh, what is it like going to, because you were really in, <clears throat> you were really in parts of the, of the city that are um, pretty thickly settled. Yes. Uh, and so I guess I'm curious as to what, like, what, like an elementary school in, I don't know, you must, you it sounds like you were in Queen Anne around that time. I'm yes. wondering what what that looks like. Uh, you know, like a like a normal school. Uh, we had, you know, Seattle is a city, but it's not as densely populated even now as it becomes increasingly crowded. It's not as densely populated as places like New York or any of the other cities back east. So, you know, my elementary school actually had a fair amount of real estate. Uh, we had like a full sports field and a playground and. Uh, you know, blacktop space that was pretty large. So, uh, you know, it was it was pretty normal. We ran around. We got dirty. We fell down sometimes. Yeah, like kids do. Yeah. So. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned the Mariners, of course. What era of uh, what era of Mariners is a sort of the sort the the first that um the first with which you interacted, I guess. Yeah. So I uh, remember. Well, you know, kids, like, have very spotty memories. Like, you have spotty memories of childhood. Like, particular events will jump out at you, but you might not remember it as well as other things. But, like, I remember being very engaged with the 1995 Mariners, uh, you know, which is 
nice because it's nice to have fond memories of your preferred franchise, especially when you're in the lean times. Although it's also kind of a bummer because, um, you know, I sometimes feel like they played this trick on me that baseball would be fun a lot. Mm-hmm. And it was until I, you know, until the beginning part of high school was over and then it was not fun. And it hasn't really been really fun much since then, but I still like them the best of all the, of all the teams. So I was fortunate. I got to watch sort of that fun run with, with Griffey and Edgar and Randy Johnson and young A-Rod and Ichiro and that whole, that whole crew, uh, when they were good, when they were very good. Yeah, they were very good then. That, that was, let's see, 95. That was, I, I don't know if you ever, if you if you ever do this, it's uh, very understandable if you don't. But <clears throat> one sort of s- strange phenomena of having been a fan at a time, you know, before say 2002 or uh, or you know whenever Moneyball came out, or a fan before you know roughly 2009 or 2010 when uh, like a metric like WAR became more popular. Mm-hmm. I think that's re- 2008, maybe 2000. Eight was when it was added to Fangraphs, for example. Um, is we is I, I mean I know this for myself is that looking back on those teams. So for example, I grew up in New England in the '80s largely, and going back and looking at those teams and having having some sense of who was good and who wasn't, um, but uh, also recognizing like that there's a bit of a disconnect between um, the way that uh, the way that baseball is discussed and. Uh, publicly now, analyzed publicly, and of course the the way it was addressed then, um, and so I'm wondering if you have a sense of like who were the best and the and the worst of the players from that age, or if you've gone back in fact and been like here were the '95 Mariners, and it's not entirely like I remember it. Yeah, I think the one that stands out from that era in terms of the the biggest uh, amount of daylight between my my understanding and estimation of them at the time and where they probably. Uh, fell out senses, uh, you know, I, I used to be a writer for Baseball Prospectus, and BP has its catcher framing data, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which goes back uh, quite a quite a good ways. And I was very enamored with Dan Wilson when I was a kid because I, I liked catchers. I thought catchers were cool. I thought Dan Wilson was handsome. <laughs> uh, and I thought he was just the best. He was just the best catcher. Uh, and... You know, we can take those sort of historical framing numbers with a grain of salt, but like very bad at framing, seemingly. Uh, and when I looked at that, I was just kind of heartbroken because <laughs> I, I can be very sassy now about catchers when I perceive and when the numbers suggest that they are not very good at receiving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and do you I, weaponize those metrics? Is that what I hear well, you doing? I, I have been, I've been known to, uh, very casually and maybe kind of cruelly say, like, I just don't have time for catchers who can't frame well, which is, you know, I should That's shut cool. up. What a horrible yeah. thing. What a yeah. dumb thing to say. Yeah. And I don't say it much anymore because I I got my my comeuppance mm-hmm. with, <laughs> with a not-at-all-me-related thing, which was Dan Wilson being a subpar framer. So, you know, that one was uh, a bummer. I think... Uh, I guess the guy who I've looked back on with the greatest attention, at least in the last few years, has been has been Edgar, as mm-hmm. we have tried to, as Seattle fans, make the, the case for his induction into the Hall of Fame, which others have done. And I think, you know, it sounds like is a, a case that is gaining increasing momentum. Uh, but, yeah, I, I don't know. I haven't felt inclined to really... In- interrogate that era of my own fandom very much because it, like I said, is one of the only times I remember really having good things happen to the team I like best. And I might prefer to have those memories sort of undisturbed. Um, so. Yeah, no, I, I, I can sympathize with that sort of line too, because, um, there is a, uh, I think, right. If you feel like there's nothing wrong with the memories then there isn't necessarily any reason uh, t- to re-examine them again, I guess. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that basically what it comes down to is this: is that uh, one can one can entirely enjoy the game without using 
the advanced stats. It's not a necessity. Um, however, uh, simply because one is excited by the, you know, at, by asking questions uh, about who's good and who's not, for example, and then attempting to answer them, I don't think that that necessarily suggests they don't enjoy the game. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I, I have not been a baseball writer. I mean, I've only been a baseball writer professionally for like a week now. <laughs> so I won't pretend that I have all the insight on this. But, you know, I think um, we've come to a time when, when writers are more comfortable being fans while acknowledging the role that might have in, you know, coloring their own analysis. Uh, and uh, I think that when you're writing about something, you know, your obligations to sort of understanding it honestly are different. But... You know, I never, I don't really write about being a, a fan as a tiny child because I don't know that people especially care about that. So I can sort of leave those ones up on a shelf and then, uh, you know, if I have to address them in a more professional manner, I can do that. Uh, but absent that requirement, I just get to sit here and be like, man, Dan Wilson, handsome, good catcher, my favorite kind. Mm-hmm. That's all, that's the epitaph on his uh, tombstone. He's not oh. dead. I'm just saying he's, he he's already prepared it because, as you're probably <laughs> aware, you just can tell by looking at him, he's just a sort of guy who wants to make sure that things are taken care of for his family, right? Yeah, he's, he's already, tidy. Yes, you're right. He's already had his tombstone prepared. And uh, actually today I was driving in uh, on Route 1 in Maine. I went by uh, two uh, – on Route 1 there's two – um, businesses. One is one was something hardscapes, right? So like, um, <clears throat> you know, like a lot of uh, granite and cobblestone goods, sure. right? And then right next to it is sort of like the same thing, except for when you're dead, it was just it was a, a memorial um, store. <gasps> so you could buy you could buy tombstones there, and it was it's. And I let me to believe this is basically just hardscapes for for when you passed on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I guess that's a that's a, from a business perspective pretty pretty savvy, right? Because uh, you you might end up with excess inventory, hopefully, if mm-hmm. you are a tombstone maker, right? Uh, but then you can just sell it to people to put in their you know in their gardens to redo yeah, their right. front walks. Yeah, uh, but I don't know. I think that probably uh, if you manufacture a few uh, tombstones, you, you always have business. I think. Yeah, it's kind well. of. I believe that's how that works. <laughs> People are dying all the time. All the time. All it's around us. Very yeah. sad. Yeah, it is. Well, what are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> you mentioned uh, so you mentioned the '95 Mariners. Is that when you became a fan proper, or was it, were you sort of did, were you dabbling at this point? Well, I was sort of dragged to games before that. Uh, my my stepmom's is the original sort of big baseball fan in the family. And so we would go to games at the kingdom, which when you're a little kid, uh, I, I don't know if you ever had the opportunity to, to see a baseball game there. Uh, it is sacrilegious what I'm about to say. But it is a terrible place to watch baseball. It's just mm-hmm. the worst. People have to have like nostalgic appreciation for it, but that's silly. They shouldn't. Well, that's it what was, I mean, it's sort of like Stockholm syndrome, isn't it? Yeah, it was a bad place, and mm-hmm. and we would always sit, you know, really high up because uh, those those seats were cheap. And um, when you're a little kid, you know, you get tired of walking places, <laughs> and you had to to take these big ramps on the outside of the the ballpark to get up to the to the top level for those seats. So, um, you know, early on my main memory of baseball, which is sort of strange, was just a lot of walking, which is weird. Cause that's not typical for uh, a fan at a game anyway. Um, but yeah, after 95, I was really, I was really into it and we would go often and there was a lot of baseball on the radio, uh, in the house while we were, you know, washing dishes or doing stuff. And, uh, and and then I had this sort of like weird gap of not regular baseball watching. It was like ionization blackout period or something when I got to college because I wasn't quite young enough for MLB TV to be a thing. And I didn't really have time anyway because I was busy being a college student. And I went to college on the East Coast. So, you know, the Mariners just weren't on very much. Plus they were in the middle or the beginning, I guess, of being kind of bad. So I, I missed 
regular Mariners watching, although I think it might have been a great mercy in the mid-2000s. Yeah, it might have been, yeah. Now, where where was college? I went to Bryn Mawr College outside of Philadelphia. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is that on the main line? It is on the main line. I, I know people from the Philadelphia area, and they're always saying this word, main line. Yeah. I don't really know what it means, though. Well, it's a it's a rail line, uh, like a commuter rail line that you can take into the city. Uh, I don't think that's where the the name originates, but it sort of corresponds to this uh, this okay. rail line that goes through a, a number of you know sort of suburban bedroom communities in mm. uh, outside of Philly. The houses only have bedrooms. Only have bedrooms. Okay. So it's a real design quirk, isn't it? Yeah. It's sort of a funky thing. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's a, an area that historically has been quite affluent, and it has all these big houses and these, you know, bougie little liberal arts colleges like, like Bryn Mawr and Haverford. Yeah. So Adorable little colleges. Yeah. And you went to, you went to Bryn Mawr, and did you uh, – what did you do there? I, I read a lot of political theory and philosophy oh in my time there. I uh, <laughs> was a I was a very committed political science major. Uh, mm-hmm. Enjoyed it very much. Um, you know, Bryn Mawr is a very uh, nerdy school. Uh, it has a very strong academic focus. Uh, a fun fact about Bryn Mawr is that. And this should probably be revisited because I think we're just being stubborn at this point. But Bryn Mawr does not have a, a fine arts major because, you know, Bryn Mawr is an all-women's college. And mm-hmm. when it was founded, uh, it was thought that being a fine arts major was not serious. And it was something that that was done sort of to occupy time until a young right, woman like got French, married. Right, like French, right? I mean, it's, yeah. yeah, fine arts and French, <laughs> this is what women women can do. And then, uh, then you can have, then you find a husband. Correct. So, right, right. so Brenmar resisted that, uh, and uh, you know, it's a it's a hard school. It was hard. I worked very hard there and learned a lot, and uh, you know, so that was what I did. I mean, we had fun too. But what are some of the what do you what do you got for top jams over there in terms of uh, political science? You got any? Uh, oh. What do you got over there? You got a. Uh, what, Tyranny, tyranny of the majority? Who talks about tyranny of the majority, you think? Is that Hume? <laughs> you got any Hume over there? I did read Hume. I, I did a lot of uh, theory of representation, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of how democracy happens, which was also something I studied in graduate school. So, you know, it was um, stuff that has prepared me to be sort of very bummed out in our current <laughs> moment. Um, <laughs> I did I did early – I did some uh, – you know, early American political thought. Uh, I read a lot of postmodernists because you kind of had to. Yeah, you got to. Yeah. You, gotta, you know. You ever read any of those, uh, those Federalist papers? I did. Yeah. Please don't quiz me on which ones correspond to which. I have a really poor memory for that sort of thing. Yeah, but well, that's I not did re- I did read them all. And some yeah. of them are, you know, a lot better than others. Yeah, yeah there you go. Real, real hodgepodge of ideas that they had there. <laughs> not all of them. Not all of them hold up. <laughs> Allow me to correct myself. It was uh, it's John Stuart Mill yes. who who uh, formulated the idea of the tyranny of the majority. Yes, which resonated with me at the time for some reason. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Edmund Burke. Do you ever do you ever do any work with Edmund? Any work with Edmund Burke? <laughs> yes, personally. That was actually the name of a TV show he had. Work with Edmund Burke. <laughs> And he would always be like, well, revolutions are bad. That's what I remember. <laughs> Edmund Burke did not care for revolutions. He said if you're going to change things, change it within the present system. Yes. I think that's what Edmund Burke said. I think that's right. I didn't yeah. read a lot of Burke. I mean, I read some. He was sort of stodgy. But, yes, I think incrementalism was a not small part of his. Ah, that is – sounds like a word he would have used. Yeah. yeah that's, a, that's a good way to or phrase it. Or at least it. a uh, word that that modern folks would have – Used to describe him, and then uh, you know, uh, I spent I spent some time with our s- sad, uh, s- at times deranged friend uh, Nietzsche. Oh, Nietzsche! <sighs> yeah, teaching Nietzsche to undergrads is wild. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, even adults guy. don't handle it too well. No. <laughs> so, I mean, for example, sometimes they'll bid up an entire socialist movement based on it oh, that uh, requires the, them to cleanse oh god 
to do a lot of cleaning, whereas uh, ethnicities are concerned. So I can imagine that teenagers don't always <laughs> handle it in the best way. Yeah, it uh, yeah. it offended, uh, I guess, in a way that is actually quite um, encouraging. Uh, it, it great, he greatly offended many um, young, earnest people in the state mm-hmm. of Wisconsin when I was teaching him. Uh, so wait, where did wait? Where did you go to Wisconsin? Carson, our lives should have crossed at a at a time much earlier than now. What the yeah. rig? Yeah, Meg so Rally. were you at wait? Were I, you at the University of Wisconsin? I I went to graduate school there. Freaking a from twenty so, so from uh, I guess I moved in August of twenty thirteen okay. until uh, May June ish uh, twenty fifteen. All right. I think. Uh, well, I think we would have just um, missed one another. Just missed. Yeah, uh, we were there. I think from 2010 to 2000 to spring of 2013, and then we left. But in theory, for what was going to be Europe, we went to go live in Paris, France. Oh, nice. Ever heard of it? It's much warmer than uh, than Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah, it is. It's also in, an important place to be, Meg. All sorts Very of sophisticated. things happen there. Yeah. Uh, it's a place where things happen. Uh, yes, it is. And uh, so we left it then. Did you ever uh, – <clears throat> we lived on uh, – oh, crap, crap. We lived – did you live on the Isthmus? On the Isthmus? Did I did live, live on, on the I, – I lived on the Isthmus. I lived within – I mean, I couldn't see it exactly from, from my apartment, but I lived within sort of striking distance of – I guess that's an f- unfortunate turn of phrase for what I'm about to say. I lived within several blocks uh, of the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> okay. I lived on Pinkney Street. If that name resonates at all. Oh, it does. Yeah, I, uh, I don't. I can't place it at the moment. Did you? Were, were you? I can tell you what I know about uh, being around the Capitol building, though, is I would frequently have drinks. Let's see. I guess on what was the at Jenna's Lounge on the South End. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like a weird triangle-shaped building. Yep. And then I would occasionally – I would have a lot of coffee at Bradbury's Coffee. Oh. Um, which is right on the north corner of it, right by the uh, Children's Museum. You know where the oh, Children's yes, Museum was? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's a great coffee shop right across the street there. Yes, I've um, had coffee there. Um, and we would I would go to Capital Fitness mm-hmm. sometimes more than others. Mm-hmm. Yes, I I was also a a Capital Fitness member. No way. I was well because the university's uh, gym was you know it was a fine walk uh, when it wasn't October through yeah. say March, right. but um, you know I just found that I was not going at all and uh, not moving around much, so I decided I had to join Capital Fitness because it was close enough that I did not feel horribly discouraged by the weather to go and move around and, you know, work out a little bit. And Pinckney is not far from the Edgewater Hotel. No. On the shores of either Mendota or Monona. I, I don't know. I never get that right either. It's yeah. embarrassing. <clears throat> and uh, I could tell you for a fact that uh, Tillsdale Wine is the house wine of the Edgewater. <laughs> <laughs> Are you looking at the at the bar menu? No, no, speak? no. That's oh. actually just a fact that I learned while I was there because <laughs> – I didn't even never go to the Edgewater, but the Edgewater is like a nice uh, sort of old Art Deco hotel at the kind of northeast end of uh, a frat and sorority row. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know how I ever came about it, but I do know that I that I consumed – while I lived in Madison, I consumed lots of Tillsdale wine, the Pinot Grigio, and that I have also in the meantime. <laughs> well, I uh – I, I can't say that I've done that. I, I mostly drank beer while I was there. Yeah, well, that's a good place to do it. Yeah, I mean, it isn't as, and it isn't. I mean, as a Seattleite, I'm sort of uh, predisposed to IPAs, which I know people not from Seattle find obnoxious about Seattle because we – well, there's better variety now. But anyway, uh, uh, Wisconsin is not a great IPA place, although it has um, – it has a couple of very good, like little little microbrews that are IPAs, but I'm not per, like predisposed to pilsners, and there mm-hmm. are a lot of those in in the Midwest. Yeah. Um, but that I I guess didn't stop me much. So it's um, what I hear is mostly you just don't like German people. Is that what I? Yeah. Is that, is that what I you're think that's to, the right? Yeah. You're trying to get it. I think that's the right takeaway <clears throat> from that. We lived on Gorham. That's where we lived. Oh yeah. Yeah, you go up Gorham. Um, I would frequently go around the corner to 
Johnson Public House. Yes. Uh, there's a coffee shop up there. And uh, there was a rock shop up there, which was uh, one of the sort of – it was like the first time – my wife, my wife is a is a very very amateur urban urban designer. Oh, um, she hasn't studied it at all, but she has. She just basically has one opinion, which is most places should actually be wine bars. That's mostly her urban design theory. Um, I can't say I, I dislike that idea. Yeah, wine she's bars pretty are dog, great. She's pretty dogmatic about it. To um, <laughs> so that place, that should be a wine bar. But in particular, she she felt that Bernie's rock shop on the corner of Johnson and Patterson in Madison. She really she really felt strongly that that should be <laughs> a wine bar. <laughs> uh, but then actually another like actually good bar moved down the street. It was called like um, eh, something quarter, something in a quarter. Hmm. Eh, it's a restaurant down there. Four quarter, maybe four quarter? I don't know. I don't know that one. Four quarter, yeah. It was called four quarter. Uh, they served... Um, well, they served a lot of things, but it's a, it was yeah, that's a nice little place right across from Caribou Tavern. Anyway, oh yeah, Caribou. Uh, yeah, that's on Johnson. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that was that was our neighborhood. But uh, so but we just missed each other. We did, yeah, uh, yeah. I um I, I went I went there. Well, I went there intending to get a PhD. Yep, that's how it happens. And then I finished my master's and sort of stuck around and realized that I didn't uh, want to live wherever I could get a job to use my PhD. And so I dropped out like a dropout. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, that is a thing that happens with some frequency. In fact, my my wife herself was in the, the French PhD program. Yeah, and uh, but that is the that is the problem <clears throat> for and it, it's I think there must have been another generation where just like as soon as they finished their PhD program they just walked into like a tenure track position and it still happens for some people I recognize that. Well, I think um, part of it is that those people are still in their tenure track positions, and so right they didn't die. <laughs> Which I, I'm, I'm not advocating for anything here, but you know, I'm just yeah. pointing out that uh, you I know. think I think there's some organs you're saying you'd like to harvest. <laughs> is what you're getting at? Really, I just have a lot of very talented friends who are very stressed about their uh, employment prospects, and I, I wish that you know those uh, delightful uh, senior members of some departments might decide that they want to like cobble shoes or something else. Uh, yeah, right. Get out there. Yeah, go Get learn a new world. skill. Start, start a small business. Yeah. Keep the yeah. keep the old uh, pathways fresh. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think I think you're probably right about that. Yeah, and I know like we had some friends there who were in uh, English PhD program. They both finished, and the the lady fr- part of the friend friends uh, was <laughs> she got a job. She got a great. It's a great job. It was a tenure track position, but it was, it was at Oklahoma State, which like in the in the grand scheme of jobs, pretty good. Yeah. Um, but. You know, it's like now. You know, now if you didn't necessarily want to live in Stillwater, right, in Oklahoma, then it's not fantastic. Yeah, I, I think you know the people I know who have finished, uh, who actually did not become dropouts and finished, have been fortunate in in where they've gotten jobs. Um, but I think that you know it it isn't a given. And I was realizing quickly that you know I really like Seattle and would like to to be here, mm-hmm. and. Uh, so that limited the options pretty significantly, and so I made a decision to sort of wrap it up and move move back to the northwest. Yeah, yeah I think that was yeah that would have been difficult to do uh, the other way. So did you um, <clears throat> wait? So you were studying the uh, political history, mm-hmm. political science, etc. Um, you were wait. Were there? Did you have any uh, top top guns? I asked you. I asked you some. Um, I, I mean, I prompted you with a couple of names for the, the very few uh, relevant topics I could remember. But did yeah. you? Uh, was there anyone who was, you know, kind of your your dude or lady? Mm. Hmm. Well, I went in thinking I wanted to study like boring, dead English dudes. Mm-hmm. I thought I was going to spend a lot of time, and I I did spend a lot of time because, you know, I was doing representation stuff with, like, Hobbes and Locke, uh, you know, and they are, 
they are, who they are, uh, <laughs> thoroughly explored and quite, quite, uh, quite old and dead. Um, Hobbs, uh, that's, uh, what, T. Hobbs? Is that right? It's Tom, Thomas Hobbs, yes. Tommy Hobbs. Tom, wrote, old Tom Hobbs. Wrote Leviathan. Did write Leviathan. True? true? Yes, that is true. But a big monster. Yep. And how we all have to worship the big monster as part of our political theory. No, um, well, I mean, that's not so far off. Um, yes, he wrote Leviathan, mm-hmm. among, among other things. Um, what happens in that book? What's the, what's the narrative arc of that one? <laughs> what's, what's the gist of it? Um, mm-hmm. You know, there are parts of Hobbes that are really wild, like when he talks about what he thinks hell is like. But the, the, the idea of Hobbes uh, in Leviathan, he's, he's writing about sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how, you know, sov- sovereigns like the Leviathan are, uh, sort of imbued with, with absolute, uh, authority, but that they have obligations in theory to those who they are ruling because they provide safety to their subjects. Uh, you know, which isn't something that we're especially keen on today. I like Machiavelli quite a bit, which sounds like I'm, plotting a takeover or something but yeah. Ma- Machiavelli is quite funny he has moments of being quite funny uh, so he's just like a pleasure to read even if I often uh, disagree with with him I mean he's dead so he doesn't care but he doesn't yeah he's done, uh, he's done with that you know so I, I, I did stuff with that but I, I had I had the realization while I was there you know I was writing about representation and I kept trying to use um, uh, sports as sort of case studies for the things I was saying. And it helped me to realize that perhaps I should just write about sports. Wait, so could you just briefly explain representation? <laughs> <laughs> In ten words is what I mean to say. <laughs> I uh, So I studied how mm-hmm. citizens should be represented both practically and theoretically, by their governments. Oh, my. Is there a concrete example of that that thing? Uh, well, I mean, that, it's all around us. How well it's working, I guess, is a, is a question that is probably not germane to our particular top conversation today. But, um, like, for, for example, I wrote about... Um, uh, I wrote about within within modern sort of political theory. There's a lot of discussion of um, sort of representation that is uh, descriptive. So having people in in government who who literally are like you, right? Mm-hmm. So that you know it is useful uh, for women to have women represent them, and oh, okay, so on. Yeah. Depending on your sort of demographic breakdown, assuming that those people bring. Um, to the table your interests by virtue of being similar to you uh, in their own sort of life experience. Um, and uh, that there is a great deal of value, not only in terms of the policy outcomes, but in, in one's experience of uh, one's own democracy when you are able to uh, look up and see people who are like you in in positions of authority. So it is useful for, there's a lot of, uh, sort of work that's been done on this with with the Supreme Court, that it is, you know, it is useful for uh, women, for example, to have uh, female jurists um, because they will bring to uh, questions that are specific to sort of, you know, legal stuff that relates to women. They will bring a, a depth of understanding uh, and appreciation for those sort of stakes that their male colleagues may lack because of their own uh, experience. And it also shows uh, women that they can achieve uh, positions of authority themselves so that might be that was something i spent a lot of time thinking no, so, about yeah, so and so now i'm realizing it's literally representation not like a sense of like like how you might discuss it in literature like uh, mimesis like how you represent people but this is literally like there is a someone in the government how are they how is that one individual representing the people who in theory elected that individual correct yeah oh, that's very interesting yeah it it's uh you know i think at this particular moment sort of both very exciting and kind of a bummer to think about <laughs> there's a lot of uh, grist for the mill <laughs> so yeah, yeah. you know we can leave it at that but 
so I, you know, I thought about those questions, but like would think about them in terms of uh, uh, you might be familiar with the effort a couple of years ago of some uh, football players at Northwestern University to unionize. Yes. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting uh, case that taught us some cool things about representation and how it how it works. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I kept writing that stuff and then my professors were like, well, this is this is interesting, but also I don't know if you'll ever get it published in a political science journal. And so I said, what I'll do is go to the much more reliable world of online sports writing mm-hmm. and write about baseball questions there uh, and use a lot of references that can be kind of annoying to people who haven't gone to grad school for political science. You're going to annoy someone, regardless of how Well, that's the thing, right? So yeah. just be true to yourself. Yeah. Dare to be true, actually, was yeah. the uh, motto of my high school. So really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, um, uh, you better do it. Uh, that is uh, – that's fascinating. Yeah, that is – it. Um, it's interesting that you, you – I mean, I think that uh, you were doing a little bit – you were making a little bit of a joke, the very dependable world of online baseball writing – like I guess relative to what like peer peer reviewed journals, right? Yeah, like, it's sort of. I mean, it is. It is more. Uh, there are more of them, and there's. Uh, I don't want to say a lower standard <laughs> in the baseball writing world because that's not true. We have some standards. No, no. I, in fact, what I would say is I don't think it's. I, yeah, I don't think it's true at all. I think that there. I mean, it's. Um, let's see. There is less. There's less appeal to authority, right? And but I would say that there's probably there's um, there's maybe uh, writers are judged uh, um, to a greater degree on their on the merits of their actual writing. I I I would hope so. I think so. I think we do. I mean, we don't do a perfect job of it by any means, but you know, it seems that more and more. Um, you know, we're, you got a lot of different folks and different kinds of folks writing stuff. And I think the, you know, online community is actually pretty good and increasingly good at sort of separating the, what is the expression? The wheat from the chaff? Wheat from the chaff. That's a rough one. I don't know why I struggled with that so much. But anyway, I think well, that... Well, I don't know how much farming have you done. <laughs> not a lot. Um, <laughs> uh, I think that uh, quality... Uh, you know, the cream rises. Is that an expression? I need yeah, to, you're, like, go you're back using to a lot of agri- agricultural <laughs> metaphors. <laughs> uh, I think that good writing has a way of finding its its way to the top, even if it uh, takes a little while. Uh, and, yes. Yeah. And I think that we are more democratic about that than, uh, than academia is, certainly. Um, yeah, well, I mean, academia is full of miserable sentences. Oh, my gosh. Um, and uh, as you noted with regard to, like, your attempts – to uh, to deal with um, Hobbes and Locke, right? I mean, in any sort of academic pursuit, if you're dealing with territory that has been well trod, it is very difficult to to feel as though one can make any sort of meaningful um, contribution, because everything seems like an exercise. Yeah. That's how that's how it felt for me. Is uh, yeah, I'm going to attempt to, I guess, write a th- like. I'm going to attempt to assert a thesis and support it about, you know, I feel like every paper is essentially being like, uh, Babe Ruth was good. Yeah, you can you can write that, but we're, we're all on board. Right. We're all on board. Yeah. Well, and the nice thing about baseball is that there's, you know, there's so much of it and there's always new stuff. And mm-hmm. so uh, I think, you know, we, we have a lot more, uh, a lot more, to work with that is the the thing itself right the game itself and so you don't have to always revisit the same old arguments although when you're inclined to you know that's like what we have hall of fame season for and and that sort of thing so we have those old old you know standbys right Uh, when we deal with the uh uh, we we open up the dusty the dusty almanacs of mm -hmm. the sport Mm -hmm. and uh have to contend with (laughs) The, the history we've created. Which is good. It's good to have to do that. You know, yeah. it would be weird if my understanding of baseball was, you know, only started in 1995, for example. Right, so it is useful to do those things. But 
I did not ask you. I still have some questions to you. How did you? What did the Italian? Where did the strong it- Italian identification come from? From my from my mom's side of the family. Um, so that's where where we are Italian that we know mm-hmm. of for sure. Uh, my I will say that part of my uh, specific uh, ethnic background is a little bit of a mystery on my dad's side, um, having him having been raised by. Uh, his stepfather from a very early age, so we don't know a ton about um, his biological father, mm-hmm. who I understand was not necessarily a very nice man. But um, yeah. so my mom said that I got to just make it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so I was like, yeah. sure, he's Italian too. Why not? You look at my dad and you're like, that could be true. Could be true. He looks Mediterranean, some variety, um, and so. Uh, but yeah, it was on, it was on my mom's side, uh, specifically on her mother's side, my, my grandma Maggie. Uh, uh, there was a, uh, Giuseppe Salvatore. Great name. I mean, just, and also just like the most Italian name. Yeah. (laughs) You're not thinking that guy's from, you know, France. No. When you meet him. France, yeah. Uh, so, you know, they, there was a little, little wave of, of immigration that came over on that side of the family. And, you know, they, they settled in Denver, Colorado, which Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Uh, yeah, because you don't, a, to the best of my, well, I know, I was not aware of any sort of large Italian population in Colorado. There's a fairly large Italian population. At least there has been historically. I don't know what the state of it is now, but, uh, yeah, it was sort of a stopover spot to, uh, San Francisco, which also has a, a very large That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, Italian population. So uh, they they settled there. I learned recently, my, my grandparents came out to visit us, and we went to dinner at a, at a restaurant here in Seattle that we like quite a bit, Salvatore's, which is not uh, ours in any way, but we still like it. Um, and I learned that my grandmother, when she was a teenager, was at some charity golf thing in Denver, which is surprising to me because I did not realize that they frequented events like that. Mm. But apparently uh, Louis Prima was there as the celebrity guest and Mm -hmm. his wife at the time, who I think was not his only wife uh, over the course of his life, uh, like sort of befriended my grandmother for that day and they spent some time together and then... She told that story, and we ate uh, Italian food and felt like we were sort of honoring <laughs> a very particular strain of our of our ancestry. So it is a yes, it is one though one that uh, um, one might want to emphasize um, for some reason. I think because uh, I mean, <clears throat> of course, there is a whole tradition of uh, regarding it, uh, Italian people as greasy meatballs. Yeah. Um, but there's another part where it's like, oh, man, have you heard about their cheese that they make? So Right. Good. It's like we we might be greasy meatballs, but we also make really good meatballs. So you sort mm-hmm. of are like, on balance, I'll, I'll take the meatball thing. I think I can yeah. sort of live with that. <laughs> yeah, the food is good. Uh, and all of our sort of uh, food is a big part of our family sort of time together. Uh, and so that has, has mattered a great deal. And, uh, you know, we – we just we like it, uh, and the rest of the the family sort of didn't have particularly strong traditions associated with the places they had immigrated from, and so uh, it just became the sort of big big thrust. Although you know there are some Italian traditions that we don't participate in, um, just by virtue of not being particularly. I mean, especially in my generation, not being observant Catholics, uh, and also, you know, them being in the, the middle of the country, um, you know, they did not do like, uh, at Christmas, you know, you do feast of the seven fishes. I'm not familiar with the seven fishes, but the, there are seven fishes. Cause you know, you, you're not supposed to eat, eat meat on, on, uh, I guess it's on Christmas Eve. You're not really supposed to do that. Cause it's sort of like the Friday thing, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I am not Catholic myself. So it, I am relaying uh traditions in a really bad way but they were in colorado you don't want to eat fish in colorado no let alone seven different kinds it's a terrible idea too many kinds so Um, uh did you ever sell it did you uh, are you aware of bafana no uh my wife and i we did not know anything about bafana um but one time we were in uh, we were in italy during the christmas vacation 
um, and uh, specifically um, for Epiphany, which is, uh, I guess, January 6th. But on the night of Epiphany Eve, a Christmas witch named Bufana, uh delivers uh, gifts to children. Oh, that's and, delightful. Uh, the way we... Encountered her was by walking. We were in Perugia. We walked into the square, and uh, she was giving out hot wine. And uh, just this old witch lady is just giving people hot wine. And I thought, this is it was. This was like there were a number of experiences exactly like this um, during our trip to Italy, which is that there's a thing, there's a cultural, uh, cultural event or phenomena that exists that everyone around us of which everyone around us was aware and then it would just happen and then we'd be like oh okay uh, but Bafana, <laughs> Bafana was one of them another one is we we were visiting someone on New Year's New Year's Eve we went out for very very late New Year's Eve and there were many f- uh, fireworks for a joka I believe that the Italian word is for a joke or jokey plural and uh, they're like really dangerous oh. um, and um I thought, oh, this is terrible. And we stayed out very late and drank a lot. And the next day, our host had to go see his um, uncle or whatever. And he's like, all right, we'll just drop you downtown and we'll go see them. And then you can come up and meet us a few hours later. And we're like, yeah, that's fine. Like, we'll go to a cafe or a bar or whatever. Uh, but I guess like – so. and then when he dropped us off in the town, um, there were so many people. Uh, it, 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 uh, this is a town called Gioia del Cala in, uh, um, in the southeast of Italy. It was everyone was walking around, and then 15 minutes later, it was deserted. Hmm. Yeah, and it only literally only a stray dog was following us around. <laughs> it's <a> sad, <laughs> stray dog. Uh, but uh, but uh, apparently everyone knew that like you know precisely at 2 p.m. you had to be inside. But that's not something about which we knew. Hmm. Yeah. So just be wary. Uh, be aware of that if you ever go to Joya del Cala. All right. Over the uh, New Year's holiday there. So when did you? Uh, when did you uh, first? Uh, this will be the last question I, I ask because we've hit the hour mark. You've almost entirely fulfilled your obligation to the program. Mm. Um, when did you? When did you begin writing though? For I mean I know I'm sure I assume you've been literate for some time, but um, <laughs> when did you begin writing and publishing p- p- uh, pieces about baseball? Uh, well, I, I started, I suppose, while I was in grad school. I had a little blog of my own where I wrote about baseball, but also about football and social issues and sports because I was sort of needed to keep my, my brain engaged, but not about old dead dudes. Mm-hmm. So to take a break from that, I would do that. And then when I came back to Seattle in 2015, um, you know, was was interested in doing that more, and it just so happened that uh, Lookout Landing was looking to add a few folks, um, and was sort of going through a period of transition with with leadership at the top. And I I knew uh, a gentleman by the name of Nathan Bishop who was taking over as the managing editor, and I think looked around and rightly saw that. Uh, the only people who were writing for him were men and would like wanted to sort of um, make a point of uh, diversifying that staff and knew that I was interested in writing. So I said, well, hey, how about it? Why don't you give it a shot and see how it goes? Um, and so I, I joined the staff there and started writing about just like a real bummer of a Mariners team. <laughs> just a real dumb, dumb bummer of a team. Uh you know, that was the year that they finally fired uh, Jack Sorensic okay, and yeah. uh, brought in Jerry DePoto. And uh, the weird thing was I came out of that season of baseball and was like, well, this would be fun to do more. I don't know what that's about. but um, So, yeah, so that fall I started writing at, at Baseball Prospectus, and it kind of uh, went from there. So it happened. I was I was very fortunate. I feel like I was in the right place at the right time a lot of times in a row. Um, so that was lucky. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I was just kind of plugging along, hoping that something would would break. And then, uh, you know, one Thursday I had an email in my inbox from, from David Appleman saying, hey, we have this opportunity coming open that I think you'd be a fit for. So, you know, you just got to keep plugging away, I guess. That stuff happens. 
Hey, yeah. listen, I feel uh, as though there's uh, plenty of fertile ground ahead, but this has been a real pleasure to get to know you, Meg Rally. It has been nice to, to get to know you, too. I feel like we, we surpassed the really low potential bar that you set for what this could be, and I think that we did a good job. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I feel okay about it. I don't know I how think, you feel. I think it turned out great. Yeah. I, think it, I think it was fine. We, yeah. we avoided it being terrible. So good. No, I good think job yeah, us. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the terrible and the awful, and you just have to be, you just have to be thankful for the terrible. Yeah, or maybe you can do better than that sometimes. Yeah. But it's yeah, like I say, it's been a real pleasure. I'm going to allow. We're of course today we're celebrating uh, Martin Luther King Day, uh, so we should probably. What's well, a day off in theory? So we should go uh, enjoy the rest of it. But um, I want to say thank you very much, Meg Rally. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. And I will say this, too. I say I look forward to seeing your work. And finally, I will say that is Meg Rally, managing editor of the Hardball Times, also contributor to Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio.